Let's pray. Father, indeed, it is good to be in your house. As the psalmist says, it's better to be a doorkeeper, to be at the threshold of the house of God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Father, we thank you for the joy and the privilege it is to gather together on the Lord's Day and to sing praises to your name. Father, we thank you also for the joy and the privilege it is, Father, for the fact that it is a a good thing, a desirable thing to be at the threshold, at the door, at the house of God because of your word, Father, because your word does your work among your people to make us alive and, Father, to lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. We pray, Father, for your help, that you would send your spirit to minister to us from your word, Father, that you'd give us hearts that are inclined to obey you, and, Father, that it would be for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want to start this morning by making a confession. Although my sermon preparation typically starts with printing out the text in the original language and then doing a translation using lexical helps, uh, and then comparing interpretive decisions with those of several commentaries, there comes a point, just as I start to plan my introduction, where I turn to Google. <laughs> yes, that's, that's the confession. Google is almost always the first place I go when I start thinking about how to introduce the sermon text. And Google is pretty much always as helpful, and part of me hates to admit this too, it's almost at least as often as helpful as any of the commentaries. Okay, with that confession out of the way, let me try to explain why I bring that up now. As I studied our text for this morning, it became apparent pretty early on that the author's intention in Genesis 4 is to contrast an earthly good life with a promise-oriented life of faith. And as I began ruminating on that, I started thinking back to a man whose family I used to work for in California. Now, the reason I thought of this man is that he had written an autobiography with the subtitle, Making the Good Life Last. And so, naturally, when that came to mind, I started typing it into Google. And that's when I noticed. You know how Google fills in your search with what it's expecting you to look for? Well, Google's recommendation, as I started typing that book title, was How to Live the Good Life. And then, I suppose this is some more confession, I started looking at Google Trends to see how often people come to Google asking how to live the good life. And apparently, unless I'm mistaken, Google would have charged me for the answer to that question. <laughs> so I didn't pursue that any further. But this got me thinking that there are people who find themselves in a place, perhaps many people every day, who ask Google how they can live the good life. And of course, it's probably not lost on many of you that the title of today's sermon comes from Joel Osteen's 2004 bestseller, Your Best Life Now. According to Wikipedia, Your Best Life Now remained a bestseller for over two years and has sold more than 8 million copies. So whether they're turning to Google or to Joel Osteen, and Google's other recommendations, by the way, include Plato, Socrates, and Mark Twain, in any case, people want to know what is the good life. How can I live the good life? What is my best life and how can I live it now? So if I might sort of reduce some of these voices down to their lowest common denominator, let me offer you a summary of the world's definition of the good life. The world's definition of the good life includes things like physical security and safety, plenty of food and water and other possessions, health, dreams coming true, setting goals and attaining them, business success, financial gain and productivity. 
and perhaps especially good relationships, particularly close family relationships through which you might hope to leave a legacy. Now, you're going to hear me say this more than once this morning, and I don't think you'll be able to argue when I say it, that each and every one of these can be a good thing. But, and this is an important distinction, does gaining these things equal a good life? Is having all of this the same thing as having a good life? That is the question. Is accumulating these kinds of things that the world chases, chases after, is this the path to enjoying your best life now? Now, as I mentioned last week, this week's text, as we finish chapter 4 of Genesis, it brings into focus the storyline in Genesis of the two opposing seeds. God had promised in chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the serpent would coexist at enmity with the seed of the woman. And as I said, that reality, at least the enmity part, was manifested first in the murder of the woman's seed, Abel, by the serpent's seed, Cain. Today, we will begin to see, through the divergent lives of Cain's and Seth's families, we're going to begin to see a contrast between two different kinds of life. One, a life whose hope is set on earth, and the other, whose hope is fixed in heaven. And what we're going to see as we study these ten verses is that your best life now is a terrible substitute. And that's what it is. It's a substitute. Your best life now is a terrible substitute for eternal life with God. So if you would, please turn to Genesis 4 and please stand with me in honor of God's word. This is the word of God starting in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For, she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to him also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So again, the main thing that we should be seeing from this text this morning is that your best life now is a terrible substitute for eternal life with God. And as you can see on your outline, I've broken the text into two main parts. Verses 17 to 24 describe the life of the serpent's seed. This longer section gives a fair bit of detail about Cain and his family line after he had murdered Abel 
and then moved to the land of Nod. And then, verses 25 and 26 give us a very brief account of the, of the life of Seth and his family, the life of the woman's seed, whose hope, we find, is a heavenly one rather than an earthly one like Cain's. So let's start where the text starts. Look with me at verse 17. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Now, first off, let's get an obvious issue out of the way. For some reason, this is a favorite question of skeptics, and it is one that is easily answered. Who was Cain's wife? The answer? Cain married one of his sisters. Adam was created from the dirt, and Eve was made from Adam's side. They were the only two people in the world, and they proceeded to have sons and daughters. Now, we don't know for sure when Adam and Eve finally had daughters relative to when they had Cain and Abel, or really even relative to when Cain was expelled from the place where they had settled, as we saw last week. What we do know, as we'll get to in later messages, is that our first parents and their children lived extremely long lives, often to more than 900 years of age. So things did not have to take place nearly as quickly for them as they do for us. We, of course, must compress the events of a typical human life into 70 or 80 years. But for Adam and Eve and their children, the timeline was much longer than that. And so, all we need to know, what the text tells us and what we can infer from it, is that at some point, Cain married one of his sisters. And then, again, we find this in verse 17 of chapter 4, that God gives the good gift of a child to Cain and his wife. That Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. Now, as we've seen in previous sermons, children are a gift from Yahweh. And it is an emphasis within Genesis in particular that children are a tremendous blessing from God. And so, it's noteworthy that God bestows this huge blessing on Cain, the same man who just nine verses earlier murdered his own brother in cold blood. And then, in the intervening verses, who continued to harden his heart, to lie about it, and to complain against the consequences. Now here, in verse 17, God gives to Cain one of the best gifts he gives to anyone. He blesses him with a child. This is perhaps one of the greatest examples of the benevolent love Jesus says in Matthew 5, God has even for his enemies. In addition to being an example of God's loving kindness even to his enemy, Cain, this is also, as it says on your outline, God's means of continuing the life of the serpent's seed. You see, beyond just the generic fact that children are a good gift, this child born to Cain is a son, which it's clear throughout the Old Testament, in view of the fact that every man will die an earthly death, that the way a man was able to establish his name going forward was by having a son. And so Cain's life, in contrast with Abel's life, which was abruptly cut short, Cain's life is established and continued here as God gives him this exceedingly good gift of a son. And the fact that Cain is becoming established becomes even clearer in the next part of verse 17. It says, And Cain built a city and called the name of the city Enoch, after the name of his son. Now it's significant that this is the first time that the idea of a city is mentioned in the Bible's history of the world. It is here where the biblical definition of a city begins to take shape, and it becomes evident throughout the Old Testament that a city, at its most basic level, is a settlement that enjoys at least a somewhat permanent uh, existence, and it, it enjoys a measure of fortification, generally by means of secure walls that would be built around the city. And so Cain's city carries with it the idea of a dwelling place that is characterized by strength and security and permanence. 
And with Cain's choice to name his city for his son Enoch, he reinforces the fact that he is seeking to establish not just himself, but also his legacy. Now, there is a difficult balance to strike, by the way, when it comes to understanding whether biblical names are supposed to carry significance in the text. Sometimes there's a clear indication that they are. Uh, The author will give the meaning of the name and connect it with a relevant detail of the person's life or the circumstances into which they're born. Uh, In this case, it's not that clear, but the fact of Enoch's name, both as the name of Cain's firstborn and as the name of his city, is clearly emphasized here, and its lexical meaning, which essentially is to dedicate, uh, makes sense with this emphasis. And so we see Cain is building and securing, you might even say he's dedicating, his earthly fortress and his legacy, both through uh, his son, Enoch, and through his city, Enoch. Continuing on in the text, we're introduced to the next four generations of Cain's family in quick succession. Look at verse 18. Now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Now, why is it, we should ask, that all of these names are listed off here in such rapid fire? And the answer has to do, at least in part, with the number seven. As you may be well aware, and this is something we've already caught a glimpse of in Genesis with the first mention of the seventh day uh, of the week being sanctified back in chapter two, the Bible tends to make a big deal of the number seven. Biblically, the number seven represents the idea of perfection or of completion or fulfillment. And so we can infer God is pointing out through what Moses writes here that Cain's ethic, Cain's way of life, and his approach to interacting with God and his creation finds its logical end or its completion or its fullness in Lamech, who is the seventh from Adam on Cain's side. Now, when I said those words, seventh from Adam, I wouldn't be surprised if some of your minds jumped ahead to the book of Jude. In verse 14, Jude highlights Enoch, who is also the seventh from Adam, but on Seth's side. And so Jude helps us out there by confirming that there is indeed something significant about being the seventh from Adam. And we'll see this in more detail when we actually get to Seth's descendant, Enoch, in chapter 5, that this is part of what helps us know that Moses intends this contrast between the earthbound hope of Cain's line on the one side and the heavenly hope of Seth's family on the other. Part of what helps us know that this is intentional is the significant and detailed contrast we find between the lives of the two men who are both seventh from Adam. So again, we'll see more on that when we're actually in chapter 5 sometime later. But for now, just to reorient us to where we are in the progression of the narrative, remember that with Cain and with his family line as he establishes it here, we are seeing the life of the serpent's seed begin to unfold. We've seen first that this life for Cain is continued through a son, Enoch, and then that it is grounded in a city which is given that same name, Enoch. So even there, you already have something of a worldly trajectory. And now we see with Lamech, the seventh from Adam, we're now going to see even more clearly that the life of the serpent's seed is taking an extremely earthly trajectory. Reading now from verse 20. Lamech took to himself two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Now, in light of the whole Old Testament, where we see a lot of bigamy, which is this practice of one man taking more than one wife, we need to first see this example of this practice in light of earlier texts in Genesis. 
That is to say, since this is the first example of this practice, we shouldn't see it in light of the later proliferated rebellion. We need to see this for what it is, the very first example of the practice of one man taking more than one wife. And this is after God had already authoritatively defined marriage in a way that clearly precludes this practice. Recall that as we saw back in chapter 1, God's creation of man in his own image is connected in a very important way with the fact that he created them, male and female. Now, although we certainly can't claim from Genesis 1 that there's a fully developed Trinitarianism there, what we do find is that by joining a plurality of different but essentially equal persons together in what can be called a unity or a unified whole, that God ordained marriage to reflect the truth of himself as a unified plurality, or as we say it, a trinity. Friends, what we see is that God ordained and decreed marriage and gave it this priority of position here in the early chapters of Genesis as one of the most significant ways in which man is to fulfill our responsibility of showing the world what God is like as those who are made in his image and likeness. Now here from chapter 2 are God's clear, straightforward words on the matter. Having described what he did with creating Eve and giving her to Adam, from chapter 2, verse 24, this is what God says. And note that this is prescriptive. That means it's an instruction of what is to be, and it's not just descriptive of the situation. He says, For this reason a man, singular, shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, singular, and they shall become one flesh. Beloved, this is the only biblical definition of marriage. And you can no more remake it to include two people of the same sex, as we see being claimed so often in our day, or to include three people of two different sexes, as you see happening with Lamech and his wives in Genesis 4. You can no more legitimately remake marriage in these ways than you can replace God the Father with, God, with another God the Son or God the Spirit or add a fourth person to the Trinity. And make no mistake... It is this reality about God himself and the unchangeable law of marriage he roots in it, which Lamech is rejecting here because for some reason or another it suits him. So this is the first way in which Lamech embodies the culmination of the worldly trajectory set by Cain, that he lawlessly takes to himself the prerogative to define marriage however he wants it, indulging his own desires to take for himself what he doubtless considers to be part of his best life now. Continuing in verse 20, we find more details of the legacy established through Lamech's family. Lamech's wife, Ada, gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Now, generally, the descriptions we read in these verses tell us that Lamech's family was successfully pursuing the advancement of various aspects of civilization and culture. There is some trickiness to the Hebrew grammar in a couple of these verses, which you might see reflected in different translations or footnotes. Uh, but I'm not going to take the time to dive into that because the words themselves tell us plenty about what Moses is trying to communicate here. The words translated tents and livestock basically give the combined idea that Lamech's son Jabal made significant advancements in terms of comfortable living quarters and the accumulation of wealth. Whereas we might think of tents and livestock as not so glamorous, the Old Testament repeatedly renders assessments of great wealth in terms of livestock owned. Likewise, we see examples of tents as symbols of desiring living, desirable living quarters, 
such as in Psalm 84, verse 10, which I quoted from earlier, where the psalmist says this, I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. It only makes sense that this is the psalmist's resolve in light of the fact that the tents of the wicked could be a comfortable and desirable place to dwell. Indeed, men like Job and Abraham and Isaac, who were among the wealthiest men in the world during their lifetimes, they dwelt in grand tents as their permanent dwellings and had great wealth that was measured in livestock. And so these are the areas of culture or civilization in which Lamech's son Jabal made great strides during his life, such that he is considered the father of these advancements. And this would be similar to sort of to how Henry Ford might be considered the father of the American car industry. Continuing in that vein, we read in verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play the lyre and pipe. And then we see in the first part of verse 22 that Lamech's other wife gets in on this legacy. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. So Lamech's son Jubal is a pioneer in the cultural fields of music and entertainment. And Tubal-Cain is described as making civilizational advancements in the field of metallurgy. And I hope that perhaps you're getting a feel for the impressiveness of all of this. It's as if, all in this one family of Cain's descendant Lamech, you have accomplishments on par with everyone getting into Ivy League schools, with some of them going on to huge, trailblazing success in entertainment, others in commerce, others in technological advancement in things like silicon chips or semiconductors, and still others in the grand fields of infrastructure and secure living, all within the context of a fortified and secure, cutting-edge urban environment where the arts and industry are flourishing. And lest you should think this is only about material wealth and prosperity, we read in the last bit of verse 22, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Now, it might seem a little obscure to have this one daughter mentioned, but realize this, in terms of the narrative of Genesis, this is actually the first daughter and sister mentioned as such. Until here, we've had to infer the parentage of women mentioned other than Eve, but Nema is identified as Lamech's daughter. And so Lamech, we find, has enjoyed not only the blessings of sons, but of at least one daughter as well. His enjoyment of everything this world has to offer is overflowing with abundance. He has taken for himself two wives who have borne him extremely impressive sons and at least one daughter. Lamech has built for himself an incredible life from an earthly perspective. We find in verse 23 that these many things Lamech has accumulated have not made him humbly grateful for God's kindness. If anything, quite the opposite. Look at Lamech's speech with me in verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Even on a quick read, the pridefulness of this speech is hard to miss. Whereas similar speeches and cries so far, along with those coming later in the chapter, are either directed to God or have his provision as their subject, Lamech's speech here is addressed to his two wives. It expresses no dependence on or deference to God, but is completely focused on himself and on others in the horizontal plane. Accordingly, he assigns great significance to his own word. He says, listen to my voice and give heed to my speech. 
Lamech's words here have the sense of you had better pay attention and submit to what I have to say. And the nature of what he has to say, including the violence he admits to committing, indicates that he is emphasizing his own strength and therefore his own authority and right to lord it over others, including his wives. Now perhaps most important to observe in Lamech's words is how he establishes his own definition of justice, or you could say of righteousness. And he, Lamech, is clearly the determiner and arbiter of justice in his own mind. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Now, there are two aspects which you need to see from this. First, recall the the fact that in context, Abel's blood was crying out in verse 10. Do you remember what it was crying out for? It was crying out for justice or vengeance against his murderer, against Cain who had killed him in cold blood. And Abel's blood cried out to Yahweh, whose decision, you'll recall, was that no one in Abel's family, who might have otherwise claimed the right to avenge his murder, they would not be allowed to either define or exact vengeance against Cain. Secondly, recall that Cain himself had lamented the possibility that justice, as defined by God, would be carried out against him. And who was it that established boundaries and consequences so that no one would dare touch Cain as a consequence for Abel's murder? It was God, on the authority of his own word. And clearly, Lamech, according to his words here, is fully aware of this. He is aware of the history and that Yahweh had authoritatively established that law and enforced it with regard to Cain. And so here, Lamech is directly and boldly outdoing God. On what authority? On the express authority of Lamech's words. Listen to my voice and give heed to my speech. Here, as with the definition of marriage, Lamech takes it to himself to define what is right and to enforce it himself. And he clearly implies that he has the strength and willingness to back this up, communicating basically that anyone who's listening had better heed Lamech's words and not mess with him. Now, let's take a step back for a moment and consider where the narrative of Genesis has brought us. Big picture. We've seen the creation account and the fall and the promise, and the first murder, and then God's pronouncement of justice. But wait, is that what that was? Is God's pronouncement concerning Cain still seeming just to you? As I said last week, it can be a hard word to tell someone who has been wronged that they must wait on the Lord for justice. In a vacuum, maybe it can seem reasonable that sooner or later, and hopefully sooner, the bad ways of bad people will catch up to them. But I hope you're sensing how much harder that is in a situation like the one we're seeing unfold here. Not only is there seemingly no justice for Abel, at least not yet, what is happening with Cain's family? They are prospering in a way that in a very literal sense gives prosperity its definition. And at the same time, there is no remorse, no humbling, no gratitude on the part of Cain and his family. If anything, as we've seen, there's the opposite. And it's these people, Cain's line in their increasing godlessness, who are being allowed to prosper. Now, I want you to think about this relative to yourself in two ways. First, what do you think or feel when you see the world prospering? How does that affect you? 
when you see people who care nothing for God's law accumulating good things you might wish you had. Money, land, homes, nice cars, travel, or even more modest things like a good education without debt or a decently supplied retirement account or any retirement account at all or simply not living paycheck to paycheck. Or perhaps you wish you had a spouse or children or that your family wasn't torn apart. And you look at the world and you see that many people who reject God's authority get to enjoy these things anyway in far more abundance than you have. When you, seeking to be faithful, when you see the world prospering in these ways, how does it affect you? And how should it affect you? How should you feel and think in response? Well, for one thing, as I alluded to already, we can see this for what it is. God's common grace extended even to his enemies. And we can thank him and praise him for it and rejoice for the sake of those who get to enjoy it. That's hard, I know. But at the same time, we can also rest assured of this that short-term worldly success is no indicator of God's approval. And by the same token, worldly hardship is no indicator of God's displeasure. In fact, as we're seeing unfold in Genesis, just the opposite can often be the case. And beloved, this should be important to us. In fact, as we'll see, we must make this our hope. Brothers and sisters, the Bible is so very full of this theme. It would be impossible to relate even a significant fraction this morning of what Scripture teaches on this. But I want to offer just a couple of texts for our equipping and our encouragement. First, Psalm 37. Psalm 37 explains at length how it is that the righteous do not need to be anxious when we see the wicked prospering. When you see the wicked prosper, it says... Do not fret. It repeats that at least three times in the psalm. Instead, verse 4, Delight yourself in Yahweh, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to Yahweh, trust in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. You see, we must not make Lamech's mistake of thinking we need to take justice into our own hands or to define righteousness in our own way and then see that it is carried out. That is God's job, he says, and he will do it. The rest of Psalm 37 goes on to explain the end game. While the righteous will be justified with their righteousness shining like the noonday sun, what is coming for the wicked? Beginning with verse 9, for evildoers will be cut off. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully at his place, and you might say his secured fortress, his city, and he will not be there. The wicked may scheme against the righteous and gnash his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked have drawn the sword and bent their bow to cast down the afflicted and the needy to slay those who are upright in conduct, but their sword will enter their own heart and their bows will be broken. You see, God knows that things appear upside down, that they can look wrong right now, that it can look like, and this is definitely looking that way in Genesis 4, like God favors the wicked, that he gives more good things to the wicked 
and that the righteous have been consigned to an existence of misery and unmet longing. We see this reality in its answer in Psalm 37, and we see this also in sort of case study form in Psalm 73. As Asaph observes the wicked prospering, he experiences the soul-deadening consequences of letting bitterness take root in his heart. But then he describes how God frees him from that by bringing him to his temple and ministering this truth to his heart, that the wicked will not always prosper. His foot will slip eventually, but Yahweh will uphold the righteous. And so, how should it affect you to see the wicked prospering? First, you can thank God for his common grace, for his love, for his enemies. And at the same time, you can be reminded from texts like Psalm 37 and 73 of God's promises, specifically of how those promises are bound to be worked out in the long term, even when the short term can be so painful. Secondly, in thinking about these things relative to yourself, as you see the prosperity and the enjoyments and the advancements of Cain's family, how should you seek to relate to, the, to things like these, the good things people enjoy in the world? This can be a little tricky. On the one hand, God gives all things richly to enjoy. Everything is clean and acceptable for us if we can receive it with thanksgiving. On the other hand, however, it is clear biblically that we should not seek worldly wealth and achievement for its own sake. Proverbs 23, verse 4 says very straightforwardly, do not toil to acquire wealth. Likewise, Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9, that those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. In Jeremiah chapter 45, when Jeremiah's scribe Baruch was tempted to despair that Israel's enemies were succeeding and to wish that he could do something to make things better for himself and his nation, God says this to him, but you, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I am going to bring disaster on all flesh, declares Yahweh, but I will give your life to you as booty in all the places where you may go. Be content, God says to Baruch, with the fact that I have promised to preserve your life. So, don't desire wealth and achievement for their own sake. That's clear. But what about things like marriage and children and family? Psalm 17 helps us answer this question in a way that might offer some startling clarity. And feel free to turn there. We're going to be there for a minute. Psalm 17. Psalm 17 is a cry from a righteous man, David, that Yahweh would hear his prayer and give him justice. While he has held fast to Yahweh's paths, he is opposed by the wicked who speak proudly and are eager to tear him apart. Now, the key section I want to direct your attention to starts in verse 13. David says this, Arise, O Yahweh, confront him, bring him low, protect my soul from the wicked with your sword. From men with your hand, O Yahweh, from men of the world whose portion is in this life and whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave their excess to their infants. Did you catch that in verse 14, that the men of the world, the wicked, 
that their portion is in this life? And who is it that gives them this portion? God does. Men of the world whose portion is in this life, whose belly you fill with your treasure. Their portion is in this life. This life as opposed to what? This life as opposed to eternal life. God gives them their portion in this life instead of eternal life. And again, looking at the text, what does this portion consist of? They are satisfied with children and leave their excess to their infants. Beloved, we must be on our guard against this, against our portion being in this life, especially in this way. I want to share with you that as I explained the text to my wife a little bit this week, we got to the point in talking about it where she asked an interesting question. Why, she asked, why is it that if what you're saying about Cain and Seth is true, why is it that our pursuits can tend to look more like Cain's line? So I just thought I'd repeat that to you, what Kelly said, and let that linger in the air for a moment and see if it convicts you like it convicted us. But really, and I say this as a homeschool dad, it is bound to be a common thing in a church with demographics like ours that we prize the cultivation of success and of a legacy in our families. And let me just say very clearly that this is not a bad thing inherently. It's a good thing. However, you should see in the narrative of Genesis 4, and even more pointedly from Psalm 17, that this aspect of your best life now that is perhaps much more appealing to many of us than other aspects of what the world has on offer can itself be a substitute for eternal life. And that is exactly the contrast David sets it up for in the last verse of Psalm 17, verse 16. As for me, he continues, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Friends, these are the options, and they are mutually exclusive in terms of where your treasure is. Your treasure is either in this world with cities and business success and culture and wealth, and yes, even with your children, or your treasure is Yahweh himself, and your satisfaction, your ultimate satisfaction, will come that day when you awake in eternity and see him face to face. Now, We've been away from our text for a bit, so let's get back to Genesis 4. Having seen the life of the serpent seed, we look next, continuing in verse 25, at the life of the woman's seed. And as we continue in verse 25, what we find is an intentional contrast on Moses' part between the trajectory we've seen of Adam's family through Cain and the trajectory we will see going forward from Adam's family through Seth's line. And let me just mention now that what we will see here, first from Eve and then from Seth's line, really represents the original biblical example of those whose satisfaction is found in Yahweh himself. Notice that the opening words of verse 25 parallel the opening words of verse 17, thus setting up this contrast. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. So in a sense, because of Abel's murder, Adam and Eve are starting over here. And the reality is Cain has a head start on them. We can gather that this is their understanding from what Eve says. When Eve gave birth to this new son, she named him Seth. 
For, she said, God has appointed me another offspring. And that word offspring is the word seed, that key word that's been repeated uh, from Genesis 3.15. God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Now this, here, is one of those places where the significance of the name within the text is made crystal clear. Seth is a two-letter word, the same letters of which help form the verb we see here translated appointed, where she says, God has appointed. This word can also mean to put or to place or to establish. And this is key. The only other time that verb has been used in Genesis so far is found in chapter 3, verse 15. There God promised that he would be the one to put, and there's that particular verb, God would be the one to put enmity between the woman and the serpent and between her seed and his seed. And so, in addition to using that word, seed, she emphasizes by giving this son the name Seth that it is God who is appointed or who is established for her another seed, thus continuing her hope in the promise. This is an unmistakable indication that this is where Eve has set her mind that her mind is set on God's promise from back in chapter 3. Now let me just draw out the significance of that a little bit. What has just happened to Eve's family here in in the text? One of her sons has just murdered the other. In a real sense, we should take from this that Eve had been left childless. And not only that, Eve was left childless in about the most painful way imaginable. Her one son had been brutally murdered, And although her other son was alive, he was dead to her, both in terms of the fact that he was Abel's murderer and in the fact that God had decreed his banishment. Now, I think we can imagine that the temptation in such a situation could be towards bitterness and unbelief, right? That's what we see later in Genesis when Jacob's wife Rachel is childless and becomes so bitter that she says to Jacob, give me children or else I die. And of course, as Jacob points out there, the person she is really raging against is God, who has withheld the fruit of the womb from her. But back to Eve, that kind of bitterness and unbelief is not what we see. Instead, we find that she is still resting in God's promise. And we see the hope she has that although Abel is dead, and Cain is clearly the fulfillment of the promise on the opposite side, the serpent's side, God has not left her without hope of his promise. And in contrast with Cain, who connected the hope embodied in his son with the strength of the earthly city he was building, Eve here connects the hope embodied in this son with the strength of the promise she had been given, and with the strength and the faithfulness of that promise's heavenly giver. We should see, friends, that this is extraordinary strength and faith that God has granted to Eve having lived through the unimaginable pain of the fall, and then the further devastation of one of her sons murdering the other, she is not bitter, but she is hopeful. She hopes in God's promise, providing an example to us as we face the difficulties of the world. And not just to us, of course, but to her immediate descendants as well. Look at verse 26. To Seth, to him also, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of Yahweh. What we read here in verse 26 continues the parallels with verse 17 and then with verse 18 above. 
The distinctive repetition in all four verses of the words to call and name indicates this intentional connection. And so we see, just as Cain's legacy embodied in his son in verse 17 was established or grounded in verse 18 in the city he called by the same name, likewise, Eve's legacy of faith embodied in her son in verse 25 is in a sense grounded or established in verse 26. As her son Seth and his line begin in a corporate way to worship or to call prayerfully on Yahweh. Whereas we've seen previously an individual approach to worship, like with Abel, what we're finding here in chapter 4 is that as civilization was developing and advancing among Cain's family, at the same time Seth's family was beginning to establish and to ground themselves in the priority of worship and prayer. Now, as these two lines go on from here to live in the world together, Cain's line, with their advancements and strength and self-determination, Cain's line becomes established and strong in ways that add to the misery of the life of the righteous in the world that had been cursed. We'll see that clearly in chapters 5 and 6. And what we're going to see is that as with their mother Eve, who Scripture says is the mother of all the living who live by trust in the promise, as with their mother Eve, Seth's line does not turn to the world's solutions. They don't turn to bitterness or to material gain or even to revenge. Rather, they turn early and repeatedly to a heavenly hope. They turn to the hope that is only in Yahweh and His promise. Friends, this, a life of hope and trust in God and the promise He gives, this is the best and really the only true definition of the good life. Unlike the world, who, as I mentioned earlier, might look to Google or to people like Joel Osteen to ask how to live the good life, unlike the world, we don't need to wonder about the answer to this fundamental question of life. This text shows us clearly through these contrasting pursuits of these two families, Cain's and Seth's, that since the earliest times there has been a clear choice to be made, will you define and pursue your best life now? Or will you submit to God's definition of life? And will you forsake all that this world has to offer in order to pursue eternal life with God? This is the most important question you can be asked. Whether you are one who long ago turned your back on the world to follow Christ, or you are one who has never even been presented with this choice up until now, the allurements of the world are strong and all the stronger if you have never known the love of Christ. But wherever you find yourself, whether in a place where life has never been better and the world is paying out splendidly, or you're in a place where life is a disappointment and you're tempted to want what the world has, either way, do not allow the message of this text to be lost on you. Cain and Lamech and others like Judas and Demas and Alexander the coppersmith These men all chose the world. They all made up their own definitions of what was right and good in order to gain what they thought of as their best life now. And they all, this very moment and for all eternity, are suffering the painful consequence of that choice. Unlike these, the Hebrews writer describes how Abraham, by faith, was willing to turn his back on his home. 
Abraham was willing to live as a foreigner in the land of promise because it says he was looking for a better city. A better city than the fortified dwellings the world had to offer in his day. He was looking for the city, it says, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Friends, Abraham was not disappointed. This very moment and for all eternity, he is enjoying the heavenly satisfaction David anticipated of being in the unending gracious presence of Yahweh himself. And so, with David and with Abraham and even with Jesus who took on flesh and lived a life like ours yet without sin, you too, we, I, all of us, we must be willing to turn our backs on our best life now in anticipation of the glory that awaits. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word on these things. We thank you, Father, for the challenge that it presents to our hearts. We thank you, Father, that you have set so many examples in your word of those who have gone before us. And, Father, that your word tells us that as we consider and read of these, this great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us, Father, that we would heed their example and their testimony to us. Father, that we would look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Father, that your word to us, although some of it may be hard this morning, Father, that you would comfort us with your mercy, with the knowledge that if you've given up your own son on the cross, that you will not withhold any good thing from us. And Father, with this knowledge, let us run with endurance the race that is before us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.